0: This is the Medical Matters Podcast, a program which brings direct information, engaging discussion, and insight into the current state and issues surrounding healthcare. Now, here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Breyer and nurse practitioner Kelly McCormick.
1: Today, uh, I thought it would be important for us to talk a, a little bit about some maybe end of life type things, or maybe not even call them end of life. But uh, kind of those questions that everybody gets asked when they show up to the hospital and maybe even when they go to see their uh, family doctor is, do you have an advanced directive? Right. And do you have a uh, health care uh,
0: power of attorney? Interestingly enough, when I went into medicine, there was no such thing as living wills. There was no such thing as do not resuscitate. There was no conversations about that at all, and everybody was treated right to the end, heroically, and uh, many times uh, without any benefit to the person, and probably increasing their suffering. So, so over they the came last... up with the idea of living wills.
1: Right. So over the last, you know. Uh, well, how, when was it? Back when you were 40 years? You mean in, in the Middle 40, Ages? Yeah, in the middle, back in the Middle, middle Ages, right? Right. Um, back when, in the Middle Ages, they, that,
0: nobody considered living wills. <laughs> medical school. But so. now, in our uh, modern times, um, but they're controversial because uh, some people have said they really don't uh, appear to do much good, but... What do you think about it? So
1: what do I think about it? So I think, because I actually work in an area of medicine called palliative medicine and uh, see a lot of uh, patients with serious, advanced, um, and oftentimes life-limiting illness. But, you know, I do get a lot of questions about that from families. And certainly at the hospital that I work at, you know, that is a question that is... uh, Presented to patients when they um, are admitted into the hospital or come in through the emergency room is, do you have an advanced directive and do you have a power of attorney? Now,
0: now most of them, what would you say the percentage of people who have them, Ooh. their living will with them is... <laughs> Less Pro- than 5%? Le- probably less than, yeah, probably, <laughs> we'll go with less than 10%.
1: Although okay. when they do bring them in, we do, they do, we so do you make encourage a, we people make a copy them of them, right, and scan them into their, you know, electronic medical record. And but there they lie. And there they lie. But right. then you can at least kind of go back and that kind of thing. Um, you know, what How do
0: you find physicians and providers Are asking people their living will preferences on admission to the hospital? Uh,
1: I think they do ask, and I think it's kind of an interesting um, concept And uh, as far as, you know, how things are asked and what that document actually means to each um, provider when the patient comes through the door, when they see that. Um, Well,
0: I'll tell you, it doesn't mean much to EMTs. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, because they have a different kind of code or right. set of rules they do that not, they live by. Is so that they, still
0: going on that they do not go by living will? So
1: or? I do not believe... I do not believe they do. I think they have to check with the command. So mm-hmm. whoever is the command or on command duty in the emergency room, you know, that physician. I think so, that ends up being a conversation. So
0: there's a conversation, at least there's a conversation. Correct. It's not automatically that they try to do everything. Like if someone has a terminal disease, so to speak. Right. They wouldn't... They would try to have a communication, right. hopefully.
1: Right. So so very interesting. So in, in my world in, in which I work, you know, you said that uh, many years ago that those things weren't even uh, available.
0: Or addressed. <laughs> or addressed. Right. Um,
1: and it's very interesting because it's still a subject that uh, many people don't address or talk about in their own families, number one. Um, number two, uh, I think there is some... Uh, issues with providers kind of looking at that uh, document. You know, when I see families, if patients have the document, that's great. i review that with the patient and or the family. Um, If they do not, um, the the thing that I I like to tell them about is the, I think the most important thing um, outside of having that document is having a conversation about what does a patient Want and what kind of things they do not want when they're coming towards the end of their life. So, if they're in a terminal condition, um, they have end stage disease, like something like dementia or Parkinson's, things that are um, progressive diseases but not curable diseases. So, we know that then it leads to individuals' demise.
0: Right. Those are Uh, chronic diseases that
1: are progressive. Oftentimes progress. Right. And, Sometimes and, they don't,
0: and they have treatments. Treatments. But they're not curative. Correct. Right.
1: Um, so it's important now, to have those conversations with each other so that families know and nobody's asking somebody during a critical, urgent time about what Well, that's what, what it what usually what they gets want. asked, isn't it? Exactly. And, and you know what <laughs> the answer is? I want everything. <laughs> And so the question what is: is what, America?
0: Everybody what, wants everything.
1: <laughs> that is true, but it it is a very difficult um, to have that a good conversation when everything's kind of in that critical. As well as families that don't talk about these end of life type issues, you know things. Or don't
0: want to talk about. Or them. don't
1: want to talk about it. That there's a lot of that as well. Uh, that we that is addressed so that way when that individual is in a situation where they cannot communicate maybe they don't have the capacity at that time because of their illness and then families are left trying to decide what should they do for that family member so the other issue that i find is when people do have the advanced directive um you know they're they're kind of written in that legally so if somebody's in a Um, state of permanent unconsciousness basically coma like state um, or in a terminal condition and even some say in an end stage uh, condition Uh, but you know we do get elderly people that will come in with an acute infection you know some pneumonia that can be treatable and but a lot of times some of the 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 providers well, look and where, say, You have a, an right. advanced directive. Well, we're, you're, you know, you're do not resuscitate. Right. And that's not necessarily. Do not, it doesn't what. mean
0: do not treat.
1: No. And, and even then, it, it may not even mean do not resuscitate, right? right. Um, if there's an
0: acute condition that somebody can, is reversible. Correct. Then the decision has to be made by the patient or the power of attorney.
1: Right, but as to whether
0: to reverse the living will and institute treatment, I just had that happen to me, which I did for somebody. Right,
1: but you know, even then, if somebody comes in with a pneumonia and that's a reversible, that's not necessarily a terminal condition. Right, the person is not in a state of permanent unconsciousness. So, you know, to me, that that is. That is a conversation to have with the patient. You know, maybe well, somebody comes in in their 60s and they say, hey, if my heart stops, I, I want right. to be resuscitated. You know, or if it's an 89, or I don't want to be resuscitated. Right. An 89 year old comes in and, you know, I do or I don't want to be resuscitated. Well,
0: what about the 35 year old nurse I knew who had a tattooed on her chest do well, not resuscitate? <laughs> what happens there, Kel?
1: Well, I think that's still a conversation <laughs> with the individual. And, and I think it's different. You know, when you work in healthcare and you get to see what people go through every day and and some of it is so you you think um, it's not
0: you think it's worthwhile i think to it's, have that conversation i think before it's worth somebody worthwhile to
1: have the conversation um with with families having conversations with their children spouses having the conversation with each other so that when there is something that happens and, and particularly when things happen and it's unexpected and family members don't know what to do or say oh, well i don't know what they would have wanted you know for me in the back of my head i'm always thinking but you've been married for 45 years how could you have not had a conversation about these things in in 45 years um, oh, but you're it happens an assumption
0: that married couples talk to each other kelly <laughs> that's true well
1: <laughs> but But they should. (laughs) They should. (laughs) They should.
0: They should. (laughs) should. But, you know, whether they do or not.
1: Well, this is certainly I think they're important documents to have. I think it offers a baseline um, to let people... Um, meaning provider, care providers, as well as family members know what somebody would or would not. And and they, they generally encompass several different things. One is do they want mechanical ventilation, which is a breathing tube and put on a ventilator. The other is going through the CPR, uh, antibiotics, dialysis. Uh,
0: dialysis is a big one because mm-hmm. some people... When they get really ill, they may have on their living will that they don't want dialysis, but sometimes a, a temporary dialysis would get somebody through an acute illness, as right. would a intubation or right. something and like that. And the same
1: thing with antibiotics, right? right? Somebody comes in with a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection and is septic from it and may be able to get through it. Right. So again, I think the important um, takeaway piece for this is to have a conversation with your loved ones Um, about the extent to which you want things done to you. It's
0: certainly a very interesting conversation. I think we need to talk about this more. Absolutely. I think maybe uh, next time we'll talk about what happens at the hospital rather than before the hospital, because what happens at the hospital is oftentimes different from what the patient would have thought.
1: Exactly. And, uh,
0: And as you said, it's a fluid motion so we'll we'll get back to this topic soon it's time for did you know on the medical matters podcast did you know that hair is involved in your hearing the sound goes through your outer ear or called the pinna which is a collection of cartilage and through your inner ear into your eardrum which vibrates and that causes some bones in the ear the hammer anvil and stirrup to vibrate which then causes the cochlea, which has 15,000 little tiny hairs in it called microcilia, and they send the impulses from the vibrations that they receive in the cochlea, which is filled with fluid into the brain, and that's how you hear. And it's the same principle that this microphone works on. Let's get back to the Medical Matters Podcast. Once again, here's Peter and Kelly. Now this is something you can take either way. You can say there's too much or there's too little. In this COVID uh, virus epidemic we're at, we know that there's a lot of misinformation. Some physicians groups, such as frontline doctors, have been spreading misinformation or what many people think is misinformation about the coronavirus. And now uh, 12 state boards have... uh, taking disciplinary action against physicians who spread false or misleading information about COVID-19. And this was a survey from the Federation of State Medical Boards. Uh, Personally, I abhor physicians who provide misinformation to patients. And uh, I I can see where this is being done. I wonder what your thoughts are about this. First of all, do you think there's too many or there's too little?
1: Too many or too little? 50. 12 51, out of 50. 51, really. Well, I would say that all of the state boards should have some sort of mechanism to reprimand um, the physicians or providers um, about the. the Truths and untruths of, of COVID. You know, I think it's difficult when... And I think it's difficult for patients when people's personal um, philosophies or, or personal thoughts about um, these issues...
0: Well, well, we all realize it's become politicized. Uh, what I feel is that... One thing is, where do you draw the line against physicians? Now, physicians need... To have some independence of practicing. Uh, I've used many drugs that weren't uh, FDC approved for a certain condition. That may be beneficial. FDA. so you can tell. We're a little rusty.
1: (laughs) It's okay.
0: FDA approved for...
1: uh, Off-use, label use. Off-use,
0: label use. And I've also, uh, when I thought the prevailing uh, opinion about something was wrong, I've done what I thought was right. So where do you that, draw the line?
1: I think there's a difference between using medications that that have been used um, to look at other m- possible uses for a particular medication. And whether they're maybe in the process of study or they've started to be studied for that particular use, but haven't gone through the whole complete rigorous trials and research trials. I think that's different than saying, I personally do not believe in being vaccinated, or I personally do not believe that, the, that COVID virus is an actual virus. Um, I I think when you're spreading that kind of um, mindset uh, to people, I I think that that is not helpful. And, you know, I I work in a hospital, so I've seen people with the virus. I've experienced it. I've taken care of them. I've seen their families um, say goodbye to their loved ones. So I find it hard to, to... to fathom that people could say, oh, this is a hoax. This is not really happening, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we also have testing, you know, how then are we able to test for that? Right. That's gone through a rigorous development of, um, making those tests and everything to, you know, that would be like saying, okay, well, I don't believe a CBC. I don't believe, you know whatever tests that have been manufactured to say you know this is what that is
0: i always felt in healthcare that you should believe what's before your eyes if you see something that's real it's real if you accept superstition then you're not really dealing with reality you're just dealing with your feelings and i think some of these uh, physicians And let's not say only physicians. Many nurses, uh, many respiratory therapists, maybe even some administrators have been uh, believe in some of the misinformation that's around. the The thing, the difference that I see of a physician uh, having some autonomy and choices that they make is that this impacts the public health of many people, of, of the whole country, really.
1: Well, uh, since so, we're in a pandemic, it's the whole right. world.
0: And the whole world, right. And and so I think that these physicians, because of that, have exceeded what leeway they actually have had to make their own minds up, that that they've crossed the line and that they should be uh, punished,
1: Reprimanded, in, reprimanded
0: maybe. in some way fined right. whatever I mean some of these outrageous claims like that physician who claimed i forget what the i I forget even some of the outrageous claims they made uh, you know they like just
1: soap at the foot of your bed for restless legs and yes <laughs>
0: we've seen that now actually I've tried that and it works no just no <laughs> I don't think it works, but I think the state boards. The problem is again; it's been become a political football. And if only twelve state boards are taking action against some physicians for misinformation, uh, I think it, it's a way uh, under use of their authority and what they should be doing. But of course, we've talked many years about how physicians are under. Uh, reprimanded, really, uh, or there's not enough supervision of of the medical uh, community, of physicians in general. And I
1: like the word reprimand better. Than reprimand than rather than punish. Yeah, yeah because yeah, I think when you say punishment, it's, right. and it's then, punitive. Well, right. and then if something's, you feel something's going to be punitive, then I think you make coming a forward with something that may be an issue, whatever it is, in healthcare. You know, we might have more errors, more. You know, I think that makes sense, issues. actually,
0: uh, when you think of the malpractice crisis, that um, re education is a better way of handling things. And so I would like, to, I don't know what the Pennsylvania Medical Board has the Pennsylvania Medical Board, rep, rep, or let's say, are disciplined they of, are anyone. They, are they one of the 12? <laughs> I would doubt it. One of the twelve but angry men. We'll be doing. I'll have to do some research on that one, and we'll see. Yeah. So, uh, I guess we're in general agreement that uh, I think the medical board should take a closer look at some of these physicians who've spread misinformation because of the fact that they're they're harming more than just one patient. Now, maybe they truly believe what they're doing. That I can't say. I don't know. I don't know what they're. Um, you know, what their motives are, so to speak. Some of them probably actually feel that way, and some of them are charlatans. We have one running for Senate in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Medical Matters Podcast. Listen weekly for more news and wisdom from professionals who provide direct patient care. The information discussed on this program does not take the place of your provider. Check out past shows, additional content, and leave your questions and comments at medicalmatterspodcast.com.